Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, for the longest time, man has been, or at least has been trying to cheat death. I mean, you hear of many stories and ancient stories and folklores and whatnot about, you know, the great fountain of youth, uh, you know, where you can find uh, eternal life. Uh, You know, many people who've done various things to somehow try and preserve life, various even medical advancements, so on and so forth. And even recently, I remember in the news somewhere in Australia, there's there's a person who's uh, being paid a lot of money to freeze dead bodies uh, with the hope that, you know, at some point these dead bodies could be raised to life. Um, and so this is a common thing that we see because every person in this world understands that death comes to all. I mean, it's prevalent all around the world. This morning, the, the passage that we're going to look at deals with the death of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. And really, the, uh, it deals with that, but even more so, the rest of the passage deals with this burial plot that will be bought for Sarah. And we're going to look at, you know, as we look at this, I, I trust that it will remind us of what we are to think as believers when we go through pain and loss and when we are confronted with death, how are we to think uh, when we face these things as we live in this sin-cursed world that has the shadow of death everywhere. And then beyond that, we'll, we'll look at you know, what the significance of this burial plot is that has been given so much attention in this chapter and hopefully it'll help us to even think through how we are to think of our Lord as well as we live in this sin-cursed world. I've divided this passage into two, and we'll look at the death of Sarah in verses 1 and 2, and the burial site of Sarah in verses 3 to 20, and I trust that it would really encourage us to continue to strive on as we learn from the truths of this world to to strive on in this sin-cursed world, living in light of who God is and what he has promised. So firstly, the death of Sarah in verses 1 and 2. It reads, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So what we see here is that Sarah lived till the age of 127. And so that would mean, so if we understand Sarah to have given birth to Isaac at 90, at this point, Isaac, the son of promise, is 37 years old. And that would also make Abraham, who was 10 years older to her, 137 years. So Sarah has lived a good, long life. God had allowed that for her. And it says that when she dies, she's in Hebron. It says uh, Kiriath Arba, and that's just an old name for Hebron. And it says that she is in the land of Canaan when she dies. Meaning that she didn't go back to the land of Ur from where she came from. She didn't go back to her old ways. She didn't go back to her idols. She had put her trust in the living God and she had rested in his promises. She was a great woman of faith, but she wasn't perfect by any means. She had her ups and downs in her life of faith. 
But you know, interestingly enough, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible that has a lifespan, her total number of years recorded in the Bible. She's the only woman in the Bible whose total number of years are there. And I don't think that's because, you know, it's rude to find out a woman's age. It has nothing to do with that. And what it shows, and what you also see is that Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose name God has changed. And what it points to or speaks of is the importance of Sarah as the mother or the, or the first matriarch of the people of God, of the people of Israel, and the special role that she played in God's redemptive history. And her age mentioned at her death is marking her out, especially as a significant woman in the Bible, this great woman who has just passed away. And in fact, she would be held up as a significant woman of faith for generations to come. Now let's just recap Sarah's life of faith, you know, with all its ups and downs for a minute. You know, more than 62 years ago, God had called out Abraham out from the land of Ur. He was 75 at the time and Sarah was 65. And she promptly left everything at that time and she followed her husband as her husband followed the Lord's calling to go to an unknown land. Then as we have seen in her life twice, she had to lie about her relationship with her husband for the sake of her husband, to save her husband's own skin. And both times she saw how the Lord protected her and delivered her. One in Egypt and one when she was before Abimelech. And then at another time, Sarah watched her husband march off with his 318 trained men to fight the powerful kings of the east in order to rescue his nephew, And again there she saw how the Lord delivered her husband and his nephew and how the enemies were defeated. That was the work of the Lord. Then then we know that Sarah was barren for for most of her life. And she knew that the Lord had promised her husband great things, including a promised seed who would further God's plan of redemption and his plan of blessing to the nations. But as the years passed on, and there was no child born, she fell prey to her own fears and insecurities. And then she instigated her husband to sleep with a servant, Hagar, to have a child. And this would have terrible consequences because there would be trouble in the family for many years. And the child that would be born from Hagar, that's Ishmael, would grow up to be a nation that would be a perpetual enemy to the nation of Israel. And then when we think, you know, she even had the privilege of cooking for the Lord and his angels. I mean, what a privilege that would have been. as the Lord and his angels visited her home. And when the Lord would tell Abraham that she would bear a son in her old age, we saw there that at that point she didn't believe. She chuckles to herself in disbelief. And we remember that conversation where the Lord asked Abraham, why is she laughing? Why is she not believing? And we saw even there of how she realized even more of who the Lord is, that he is one who knows all things, including her heart. And so she's growing in her faith. And as Hebrews 11.11 says, by faith, then Sarah received power to conceive in her old age. She was barren and she was way past the age of, 
even having a child. And so she received power to conceive in her old age. Why? Hebrews 11.11 says, Because she considered the Lord to be faithful to His promise, and she rested in that fact. And then at the age of 90, against all human odds, in fact, human impossibility, at the age of 90, she had the privilege of giving birth to the promised son, Isaac. Exactly as the Lord said. And then we saw that uh, during that time of weaning as well, she had enough spiritual discernment to understand that keeping Ishmael and Hagar in the home would only be a threat to Isaac would be a threat to the promises of God and what God plans to accomplish. And so Ishmael and Hagar were sent away from the home. And then years after, as Isaac grew up to be a teenager, perhaps even a young man, she witnessed her husband take her only son, Isaac, the son of promise, to offer him as a sacrifice to Mount Moriah. Why? Because this is what the Lord required. But again, she saw how the Lord was faithful and had provided a lamb and she was growing in her faith and she trusted in the Lord. Sarah had grown in her faith over the course of her life and her trust and reliance on on Yahweh, the true and living God, was rock solid. And you know, years later, Sarah would be upheld. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 51 verses 1 and 2, to those who seek the Lord, to look back at what God did with Abraham and Sarah. That's where you came from. That's the rock from which the nation of Israel came from. And then in the New Testament, as we come to, the apostles see her as a wonderful woman of faith as well. In Hebrews 11, the, the Sarah is counted in the great hall of faith. Then even Peter, in 1 Peter 3, he holds up Sarah as an example for other believing wives. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And who is the example that Peter uses? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Sarah is held up as a, as a woman who hoped in the Lord, as a holy woman, as a woman who followed her husband and submitted to her husband in the Lord. So Sarah, while she was not perfect by any means through the mountains and the valleys of life, she had learned to put her trust in the Lord. And she was always by her husband's side. Through the good times and the bad times. And which is exactly why Peter then uses her as an example of a godly wife. I mean, even think about this. The, the kind of life that she had to live as a wanderer with her husband. You know, intense, moving from place to place instead of enjoying the comforts that others would have enjoyed in, in living in a house and just really settling down. And that, th those comforts too, she, you know, she, she was okay with that. She endured it all. And she had become a great woman of faith. Now think about it from Abraham's perspective. 
this woman, Sarah, she was the only one who's been with him from back in the days of Ur, when he was an unbeliever. And then you remember when Abraham left Ur, he left his family back there and that pagan lifestyle. But the only person that came with him that still remained at least to that day was Sarah. Even Lot had abandoned him and gone. And then so for, from the time in Ur to, to the time of sojourning in the land of Canaan, that is another 62 years. So some scholars think that you know, if you take the average age of when people were married during that time, it is quite possible that Abraham and Sarah were married for more than a hundred years. I mean, we know for sure, 62 years sojourning in the land, they were married already by then. And if you were to just think through, okay, what's roughly an average age people would get married then, they would have been married, it is quite possible to be, to, for them to have been married for more than a hundred years. And 62 of those years as believers. Sarah was always there with him for all those years. And after all that time, now she's dead. God's promise of the seed had come to pass. But that's pretty much it as far as God's promises, as far as fulfillment of God's promises up till this time. Yes, she was still in the land. She'd never left her husband. She never left the Lord. She was always there with him, sojourning in the land. She never went back to her homeland, never went back to the idols. And so now with the death of his beloved wife, Sarah, verse 2 says, Abraham mourned. And wept for Sarah. I mean, in no other instance do we hear of it recorded of Abraham weeping. You know, he's had some difficult things to do. But nowhere is it recorded that he was mourning and weeping during that time. And yet here, after his beloved wife of so many years dies... He mourns and weeps. You know, and mourning in those times were very public. It's not like, especially in our day and age, and particularly in uh, Aussie culture, you know, where a lot of that is very private. You know, we don't like to show that mourning and grief and weeping, generally speaking, on the outside. But in those days, in those ancient Eastern times, mournings included tearing of one's clothes, putting on sackcloth, you know, having one's beard and head shaved, putting dust on the head, and loud wailing. In fact, even the people who would come for the, during that time, they would join in the loud wailing as well. What grief and sorrow would Abraham have experienced after his dear wife died? I mean, can you imagine losing your spouse after being married for more than a hundred years? I mean, there's not one here that's married for that long. And, I'm, and it's extremely unlikely that any of us will live that long to remain married for that long. But many of us know what it's like to at least lose a loved one, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent, Maybe a grandparent. 
maybe a sibling. Maybe an uncle or an aunt or, or somebody really close to you. Death comes to all people without exception. Young and old, rich and poor, believer or unbeliever. Why? Because death is the result of sin. It is part of the curse. You know, God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you will eat from that fruit, you will surely die. And they sinned against God and ate that forbidden fruit. And then God came to them as he's talking about the different curses. He says to Adam after he sinned, Because you have eaten of the tree, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And that word of God continues to remain fulfilled, and it's continuing to be fulfilled through the ages. And so death came into this world. So one of the things that we need to understand is this. So long as we are living in this sin-cursed world, grief and pain and sorrow and death, they're all part and parcel of living in this sin-cursed world. That's the reality of living in this sin-cursed world. And as Ecclesiastes 3.4 says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time to rejoice, but there are times in this sin-cursed world when we will undergo severe pain and loss and it is entirely appropriate for believers to mourn and grieve and cry. And we don't deny our emotions and, and think it's you know, more spiritual to be stoic in this life because we have put our trust in the Lord. You know, to weep and mourn and, and, and to cry, it is a gift from the Lord to, to express our pain and to, to give relief to our pain as we're clinging on to the Lord. But here's the thing about you know, our feelings and emotions. Uh, and I just want to clear this up. We are never to be controlled or driven by our emotions. We're never to be controlled or driven by our emotions. You know, I feel this way. So, yeah, because I feel this way, that's how I'm going to live this day. No, we should never live like that. That's a terrible way to live. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, somebody who's got a job and says, oh, I don't feel like going to work today, so I'm not going to work. And imagine if the person lives like that for everything. That would be a terrible way to live. So we should never be controlled or driven by our emotions. Our feelings and our emotions simply reveal what is going on on the inside. See, feelings and emotions, they're simply a window to what is on the inside. This is what's happening on the inside. That's why I'm feeling this way. That's why these emotions are coming out this way. It's a window into our hearts. And so when we understand it that way, then we know how to deal with our hearts and respond appropriately, especially if there's sin in our hearts. When we realize, oh, I've got all these feelings and that's because of anger. So now we know what we need to do. And not just act out our anger. Or perhaps it's impatience or, or anxiety or fear. Or perhaps even apathy. You know, Lord, I, I, I'm just flat today. Or, or this season or this week or whatever. I'm just flat. I'm apathetic. 
But Lord, that, that's not you. That's not your word. That's my wicked heart. It's just a window of where my heart is at. And so Lord, please help me to not rest and be controlled by emotions, but help me to rest in your word and in who you are and what your promises are. And help me to live this way for your glory. So we're not driven or controlled by our emotions in the way we live. But that does, and we don't rest in our emotions. But that doesn't mean that when we go through deep pain and suffering and loss, we remain stoic. As though it's the most spiritual thing to do. No, when your heart is broken, it is right and good for us to express our sorrow, to express our grief, to mourn the loss of our loved one. It is entirely appropriate to do so, to express these emotions of grief and sorrow as we cling on to the Lord. And what that pain and that loss and that grief should remind us is that things are not right in this world. This is a sin-cursed world. And things are not okay in this world. This is not how it was from the beginning. And as believers, what it should then do is the pain and the loss, it should make us long for the Lord to return, for the Lord Jesus to return to make things right in this world, where there will be no more pain, no more loss, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. And that's why as believers we are called to mourn, yes, but to mourn not without hope, but with hope. Why? Because we have confidence that God will make things right one day as Jesus returns. And if the loved one that has passed away is a Christian, we know that one day we will see them in glory as well. This is what we should keep in the forefront of our minds. In the midst of grief and pain and loss. Yes, the reality is we live in a sin-cursed world. That's why there's pain and grief and loss. But when the Lord Jesus will come back again, God will make everything right as he has promised. So Abraham rightly mourns and weeps over the death of his dear wife, Sarah. But he's not despairing in a, you know, in a hopeless way. And here's the thing, even though his wife Sarah did not see the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the death of Sarah has provided another opportunity for Abraham to trust in God and rest in his promises. And with that we come to the burial site of Sarah in verses 3 to 20 the burial site of Sarah. So now with the death of Sarah, Abraham is confronted with another problem. See, he doesn't own any land in Canaan. And if you don't own land, then you don't have a place to bury your dead. I mean, there's some modern corollaries, I guess, you know, if you're not a citizen in this place, in this country, you can't own land, right? If you're just somebody who's come on a visitor visa, I don't know all the rules, but I would like to think that if you're a visitor, just somebody passing through, you can't just own land outright. Something to the effect of that. So if this is not your homeland, you can't own land. And if you don't own land, then you don't have a place to bury your dead. Because in those days, they didn't have symmetries and things like that. It's whatever land you had, that's where you buried your dead. And your, your whole family was buried there. So Abraham is confronted with this problem. And so he approaches the Hittites in the region. Now the Hittites, if you remember from 
whenever it is that we looked at Genesis 10, the table of nations, the Hittites were the sons of Heth. And Heth was the son of Canaan. And Canaan was the son that Noah cursed, if you remember. That's that cursed line. So, so in other words, these Hittites but are none other than Canaanites. They were godless people, idol worshippers. And Abraham approaches them as they are in the land that he's living in. And this whole section from 3 to 20 is about Abraham now negotiating to get this burial place and how he finally gets it and buries Sarah. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner, a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for burying for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham says to the Hittites, Hey, I'm a foreigner in this land. I'm a resident alien here in the land of Canaan. Yes, I've been here for 62 years, but I'm still a foreigner. This is not my homeland. So he's essentially acknowledging, because this is not my homeland, I don't own any property here. And under ordinary circumstances, a foreigner would not be entitled to purchase any land that is not their homeland. So Abraham then makes that clear. Yes, I'm a foreigner. I don't own any land. This is not my homeland. But he says, I need a burial place to bury my dead. Now the negotiation starts going back and forth for the rest of the chapter. Verses 5 and 6. It says, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. One of the things that you should recognize is, you know, people wouldn't just simply give off their homeland to other foreigners. And, and what the Hittites are doing here is, I think on the one sense, genuinely recognizing the greatness of Abraham, calling him Lord and Prince, they recognize something of God's blessing in his life that, you know, he was a man of stature, a respectable man. And because of this, they, because Abraham was this kind of person in their eyes, they say to him, hey, you can have any of the choicest tombs that we have and no one would refuse you. But notice here what they're doing. Abraham is asking to buy a place to bury his dead. What are they saying? They're saying, hey, we're ready to share the choicest of tombs with you. But they're not ready to sell property as a permanent possession to Abraham. Now, Abraham being a godly man and a humble man, you know, in a very curt, he's very courteous in his dealings, bows to them, and he makes very clear that he wants to buy a specific burial place. Listen to verses 7 through 9. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, Hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. So Abraham says, listen, all I want is a burial cave. 
Let me be more specific. It's the cave of Machpelah belonging to Ephron. It's right at the end of his field. And we know from verse 17, another reason why Abraham would have wanted this specific cave, because it's right next to the right next to Mamre. Mamre was where he generally lived in. So it's, it's a close enough place to where he lived. And Abraham essentially says, okay, so you give me that cave of Machpelah that belongs to Ephron, I'll, I'll buy it for full price. You know, no discounts, nothing. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the full price for it. Now evidently, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. The hearing of this negotiation is taking place at the city gate. And if you remember, Lot, you know, when we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was sitting at the city gate, and we talked about how it's all the officials that sit at the city gate. The, the city gate is, is where all the business transactions and the legal transactions took place in front of many witnesses you know people would come into the city people would go out of the city and in in the midst of all these witnesses all these official transactions would take place legal transactions business transactions whatever else you could think of all that took place at the city gate so that's where this is taking place verses 10 through 13 now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all who went in at the gate of his city. And he says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. So now this important official named Ephron comes forward and he says, Abraham, oh, you don't need to pay anything for the cave. You can have the cave. In fact, you can have the cave and something extra. You can have the field as well to bury your dead. But again, here's the problem. Ephron is offering this place and this cave to Abraham as a gift. But there's no guarantee to Abraham or his later generations whether they will continue to have permanent access to this burial place. I mean, he could change his mind in the future because it's just sort of given over to him like that and he could just take it back. And because it's a gift, who is to say that, you know, there won't be other conditions laid on it in future? Who knows, maybe other Hittites too could be buried there, but Abraham wants this burial place exclusively for his people. And again, keep in mind, these are godless people. These are Hittites. These are the Canaanites. So it's, it, it's good and wise for Abraham to be cautious at this point. I mean, think of it this way, right? So we don't have a church building, right? Now let's say we go to an organization and say, hey, we want to buy property from you. And they say, oh, you, you know, you, you don't have to pay us anything. Oh, you can have this building and you can use it and, uh, you, you know, for as long as you want. You can have it. That's great. But the problem is this. They'd be able to kick us out anytime they want. In fact, they can have other people anytime they want as well. And sometimes there could be clashes with perhaps some of the times that we are meeting because, hey, it's just given to us like that and there's nothing else so they can do whatever they want. So this is very different from actually owning a place that is yours. Very, very different. 
So that's the problem that Abraham is facing with the burial place. Again, Abraham is being very courteous. And he says, I want to officially buy the property and own it for myself. So name the price, Ephron. I want to buy it. And it's interesting how you know, Abraham was only asking for a cave. And in there, Ephron has also put in, oh, you can have the field as well. Because now his true colors come up. Look at verses 14 through to 16. Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So Ephron now tells Abraham, Hey Abraham, you're a great guy. You, you seem like a you know, wonderful person. And the price, oh it's just nothing. It's just a mere 400 shekels of silver. You know, now in those days, you, know, you didn't have metal coins. And shekel was the, the standard weight of value. So you'd have silver or gold or whatever and you'd have shekels which are weights and according to so many shekels of gold or so many shekels of silver is how people traded things so the shekel was the standard weight now it's the what this standard of shekel was has you know, varied over the years. But just to give you an idea of how exorbitant this 400 shekels was for a field and a cave, you know, just look at 2 Samuel 24, 24. You know, many years later, David would buy a threshing floor from Arona for 50 shekels, a big, massive threshing floor. I mean, this is just a cave, just a, just a tomb and a field with it. So you can understand what kind of a rip-off this is. I mean, it's almost like you're going to buy like a small, tiny house. Maybe your first home or something, you know, especially in these days, you know, you don't get anything below 500,000 or 600,000. And then you go there expecting that. And then the person says to you, actually, it's six million. You know, that's basically what's happening here. Oh, it's nothing. It's just 400 shekels. You can have the field and you can have the cave. But Abraham pay pays the inflated price. Why? Because he has no choice. He needs a place to bury his wife. And he needs a permanent place for the rest of the generations that will follow. And God had made him rich, and so because he had that money, he was able to pay that kind of exorbitant amount, 400 shekels of silver for a mere cave and a field. Now verses 17 through 20, it tells us that the, really that the property was legally now handed over to Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah was buried there. Look at verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that's that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now the text here is emphasizing that this was a legitimate transaction. Abraham now owned a small 
piece of property and it was done all according to the regulations of the day. Yes, Abraham was a foreigner in the land, but this was done in public, in front of witnesses at the city gate. It was an official transaction, therefore. And Abraham paid top dollar exactly as was asked. And essentially, this was the official title deed that the field and the cave of Machpelah and the trees that were in it, all of that. It's like, you know, when you sign that contract, when you buy a property, this and this and this, all this belongs to you. So it's sort of like a title deed in front of everyone saying, This is officially now Abraham's. And Sarah was buried in this cave of Machpelah. Now you might be thinking, okay, wow. That's a lot of detail. I mean, what's the point of this passage? Why does the text spend almost a whole chapter on this when the author could have just said, Oh, Sarah, uh, she died. Abraham wept for her and then Abraham bought a piece of property and buried her there. Why almost an entire chapter with all these details? Well, first of all, remember, Abraham was not from the land of Canaan. He was from the Ur of Chaldeans. And so with the death of Sarah, he could have said, oh, you know, the property market in Canaan is through the roof. And besides, I want to go back to Ur and bury my wife along with my ancestors there. And in ancient times, that was a way of, you know, showing respect and honor to your family and that continuity of the family line, all of that. So you'd be buried with your ancestors. But by burying Sarah here, in, not in his homeland, not along with his ancestral graves, is showing that Abraham has broken ties with his family. He's broken ties with that pagan background that he belonged to, and now he's committed to the Lord. And beyond that, what it also shows is that Abraham is committed to stay in Canaan. In fact, the author makes it a point to tell us that all this happened in the land of Canaan, as though we don't know in all these chapters this was happening in the land of Canaan. He really emphasizes the point. Look at verse 2 again. Sarah died in Hebron, Kiriath Arba, in the land of Canaan. We know Hebron is in the land of Canaan. But he emphasizes the point. Then look at verse 19 again. Sarah was buried in the cave of Machpelah. Where? In the land of Canaan. He really wants to emphasize that this took place in the land of Canaan. Remember, God had repeatedly told Abraham, to you and to your descendants, I will give this land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Repeatedly, he would tell them. And up until this point, Abraham did not possess any land in Canaan. Now with the death of Sarah, he buys a field and a cave for an exorbitant amount because of the promise that God made to him that he would possess the land. Really what this is, is an act of faith on Abraham's part. Yes, previously, if you remember from a couple of chapters ago, Abraham had water rights to a well in Beersheba. And, and we saw that that meant that he had some control over the land. But he never owned any land until now. Now he owns a small field and he owns a burial cave. And as small and as significant as it may seem, Abraham believed that this was the first fruits, so to speak. Or the first down payment that he and his descendants would one day possess the land. I mean, this is a wonderful thing that Abraham has done here. 
even in the face of death. Even when Abraham's wife, who had been with him as a foreigner in the land for so many years, has died without seeing the fulfillment of God's promises, Abraham is believing that, no, this will come true. That even death would not be an obstacle for God to bring about what he has promised. See, if Abraham believed, okay, death of Sarah and death of me and death of my son or whoever, that meant the end of it, it really wouldn't matter where Sarah would be buried. Right? But it's precisely because Abraham believes that God can overcome death and sin and one day he will do that. And his promise of land to him and his descendants will come to pass. He buys this expensive piece of land to bury his dear wife in. Because he believes this will absolutely happen. And that's why it matters where my wife is going to be buried. You know, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 says this. Speaking of Abraham and, and Sarah and some of the others in the faith. It says, These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and even having greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But they don't do that. They stay in the land of Canaan. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Abraham knows one day God will bring this about. And there won't be sin and death. And there will be a resurrection of the dead. And God will do exactly as he has promised. You know, when we live in this sin-cursed world with the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the death, we can either live in, in bitterness and in hopelessness, you know, pointing the finger at everyone and even at God for our pain and our sorrow and our loss. Or we can rest in who God is. And what his promises are. And then live by faith. Live with hope. Even in this sin-stricken world. Yes, there will be pain and suffering and death in this world. But for us to say, no, I know fully well, God will bring to pass everything that he has promised. Yes, he has said, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. He hasn't promised that. But even if I die, in the world to come, in the life to come, God will still fulfill everything that he has promised. And he will bring me back to life and I will be with him to see that. Brother, sister, I just want to encourage you and say, death is not the end of God's promises to us. God will one day raise us from the dead and bring it to fruition, all that he has promised. And as we'll see in the rest of the book of Genesis, it's not just Sarah who will be buried in the cave of Machpelah. Abraham will be buried there. Isaac will be buried there. Rebekah will be buried there. And even Jacob, even as he goes to uh, to Egypt, he'll say, I want you after I die to take my bones back to the cave of Machpelah. Back to the land. Why? Because they're all trusting in who God is and that he will fulfill his promise that they will have this land as an eternal possession. You know, again and again as the generations passed, This cave of Machpelah would have been a reminder to them 
that even though this is, yes, we don't own the land. God has promised it. This is just a small property and a burial cave. But God will fulfill his promises. And this cave would be a reminder of that for generations to come. That God would fulfill his promise of land. And this was simply an initial glimpse of that. Now I want us for one second to think about not just the cave of Machpelah, but another cave. See, Jesus, the Son of God, he came into this sin-cursed world in the form of a man about 2,000 years ago. And he lived a perfect life in this sin-cursed world. And he experienced all the hurt and the pain and the sorrow of this world. And he saw death all around him. And then he died in the place of sinful people like you and me. Paying the price for our sin. And he bore the wrath of God that was due us. And he died in our place. And you know, Jesus too was placed in a tomb. It wasn't a tomb that he bought. It was actually a borrowed tomb. You know why? Because he, didn't, he wouldn't need that tomb for long. Because after three days, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, being the first fruits of all those who will trust in him. Friend, if you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, as you see the sorrow and the pain and the death and all that in this, in this life, there is still hope for you. And that hope is what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross. But if you reject him and reject the way that he has provided for you to have eternal life, for you to overcome death and to have this eternal relationship with this Savior and God, if you reject Him, you will be cast into the eternal hellfire. And it will be an eternity of pain and sorrow and an everlasting death, as the Bible calls it. Turn to Him today and trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you say you truly trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then I would say turn from your sin, turn from your ways, and continue to trust in the Lord Jesus and continue to move in that direction. Continue to be obedient and walk in His ways because that is the evidence that you have truly put your trust in Him. For those of us who are Christians, no, we don't go back like some of the Israelites looking at the cave of Machpelah. But we look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. The empty cave of Jesus Christ. And that is a reminder that God will overcome death. He has through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our hope as well. And he will bring to pass everything that he has said. Yes, those promises may not be fulfilled in this lifetime of ours. God has never promised that. What God has promised is he will bring it to pass. And in his time, even if it's after our death, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, he will raise us back from the dead and bring those promises to last and for us to dwell with him in eternity in a land where there's no sin or sorrow or suffering or death. That's the hope we have. And so, like the song we sang earlier in the service, let's not put any anchors down on this earth. Let's not fix our eyes on the things of this earth, but... Let's fix our eyes on heaven and on the Lord Jesus and continue to strive on by his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the living God and you have given us so much from your word, from what you have done in the past,
to keep us anchored in the truth. Most of all, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who died and rose again and that empty tomb reminds us that we didn't be hopeless in this world but we simply trust in the Lord Jesus having our eyes fixed on him help us to live each day in light of that truth that he's coming back once again to make all things right. Father, we pray that these what we heard this morning will not simply go into one year and go out the other but it would sink deep into our hearts and it would cause us to live for your glory and your honor. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.